Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Bruce Croxon, managing partner of Round 13 Capital, former Dragon's Den star, and founder of Lava Life. Lava Life is a success story that contributed in part to what we now know as online dating and social media. Bruce's primary focus is now venture capital and supporting Canadian entrepreneurs. There's no doubt he's a proud Canadian entrepreneur and he's proud of the ecosystem we have in Canada. He and his partners manage over 325 million in three funds focused on venture stage and growth stage companies. Now I never know how these interviews are gonna go especially when speaking with a highly successful and driven financier and entrepreneur. That said, this episode with Bruce is outstanding. It is a very revealing and positive conversation, even in the throes of the COVID crisis. Perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, but it's always nice to hear from someone who is amazingly successful, but speaks with such humility, self-awareness, and a goal to help others succeed. Now, if you ever wanted to pitch round 13, Give this episode a listen, as it will give you an inside scoop of what Bruce and his partners are looking for, or in other words, the partners they're looking to invest in. Enjoy this episode and stay well. On the line, I have Bruce Croxon, who is the founding partner of Round 13 Capital and also a very successful Canadian entrepreneur. Bruce, thank you so much for making the time. You're most welcome and pleased pleased to be here. This is great. It's a very interesting times we're in, so I think our discussion is going to weave through some some topics that I think will be helpful to the listeners. But I think the best way to to frame up our conversation is to hand it over to you for an introduction uh, of yourself. So what do you say we'll do that? Sure, no problem. You've got my name right. It's Croxon. I'm I'm a lifelong Canadian entrepreneur, proud Canadian entrepreneur have spent the bulk of my career in technology, was co-founder of a company that I guess was credited with revolutionizing the way that people meet online. It was one of the first online dating sites called Lava Life. And off the back of the success of that company, I've stayed very involved in the Canadian tech scene and uh, am now an active investor in Canadian technology companies through a a company I've co-founded called Round 13 Capital. You have an amazing rap sheet there considering Lava Life and, and really, I think, opening up the world of online dating. So uh, congrats to you there. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, we were a little ahead of our time. For once, it paid off. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, that's awesome. I do remember that. Uh, and moving in now, your main focus is round 13. So I understand you have two funds. You have an early venture fund and a growth fund. But Given the nature of the podcast and discussing financing for entrepreneurs, can you, can you share with us what those funds are and, and some of the parameters around them? Yeah, 100%. So 
we actually have three funds, but two strategies. So the venture fund ha- is, is on fund number two. And the strategy on both of those venture funds is, is, is the same. It is to put, you know, on average five to $10 million into Canadian-based technology companies that we feel are, are ready to scale. Like they've gotten past the whole product market fit stage. They've got enough customers that we can understand the profile of those customers in that, you know, where are they coming from? Uh, how much does it cost to attract them? And what is their propensity to stick around? And, you know, if there's enough customers that the company has and can convince us that it is in an area that will actually make a difference to people's or businesses' lives, then we dig in and, and do the work. And, you know, right now there's 15 investments across those two funds. And I'm proud to say they, they are all based in Canada. And, you know, we do take a very active approach being an operator-led fund in trying to add as much value as we can to the investments after we've made them. The second strategy and the third fund is more of a, a growth fund where we are, uh, we were lucky enough to attract a partner that has spent the past 20 years doing technology deals in the country, first with Canaccord Genuity and then with National Bank. And that fund is looking to put on average 15 to $20 million into companies that are a lot closer to exit than some of our venture portfolio would be that are looking for that sort of last tranche of capital and some hands-on advice on how to best position for an IPO or, or a strategic sale. And that is an area that we feel is underserved in the country right now. It was the job of a lot of the smaller brokerage firms historically. And that business or that servicing of that business has largely gone away. And we think it's uh, more than ever, it's got a place uh, in today's financial landscape. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, the the world I grew up in is that public venture capital and and working with the brokerage firms and uh, and the service providers there to help build public companies. But I can see where that growth fund really fits that need because the world of the public venture capital has really changed. So that's that's interesting. But uh, there's a few angles I want to go from here. Um, one, when you speak to the venture fund, you talk a lot about understanding your customer, and really, to me, that gets into unit economics. And perhaps we could talk about that in a bit. But it, uh, I do want to go down a path of talking about the fact that you're a staunch advocate for Canadian tech companies and Canadian entrepreneurs. And perhaps the biggest downfall that Canadians have or Canadian op- entrepreneurs have is, is that access to capital. Can you speak to this and perhaps the pros and cons or the, the positives and negatives of what we're seeing in the Canadian marketplace when it comes to raising capital? Sure. And I, yeah, and I think the best place to start on that explanation is just to look at history. I mean, obviously the U.S. private equity and venture capital industry has been around a lot longer than it has in Canada. It has had cycles to build up returns and histories of returns, and it's got a lot of practice, if you will, of pension funds participating in venture and private equity Canada just doesn't have that history. You know, we we did get started uh, quite a bit later in the industry, but it really has changed a lot in the last five years. And we were very motivated to get into the, the, the space in a more formal way because there was such an extreme dearth of capital 
at work, particularly in the growth stage. It was quite ironic. You know, the government had done an excellent job, in my opinion, of backing incubation. We had more incubators per capita in Canada than anywhere outside the valley at one time, I think. But ironically, as these companies started to scale and actually prove something, the capital started to dry up. And you would think that that, you know, would not be the case because they've started to de-risk as they've started to grow and the risk was less. But I think a combination of the government and some active angels that were more comfortable writing smaller checks, you know, we're in an era that, you know, every tech idea sounds like a great idea out of the gate. You know, there's a lot of early euphoria. So I think that part of the market was well served. And when we launched, the growth part, you know, just wasn't. And U.S. companies and venture capitalists and private equity people weren't coming up to lead $10 million deals in Canada. What's happened over the last five years is I think that there has been more capital been put into the sector. I would say we're still not at a stage where the deals are, are, are anywhere near as competitive as they are in the U.S., but it's better. And, you know, I, I, I think that that comes for a number of reasons. I think the world actually is starting to recognize that Canada has the best engineers on the planet. You know, don't take my word for it. Just, you know, look downtown and see Google and Uber and, you know, et cetera, uh, with, with branch plant offices up here poaching our best and the brightest, sometimes on the back of government subsidies, which is a, a topic we can address at a different time. But they're here, right? And they're here for a reason because they recognize that we've got talent. And I think that now we're far enough into that historical cycle that I started talking about that, you know, entrepreneurs are having, we're we're having second and third time exiters as Mm. operators coming back into the ecosystem, not only with checks, but also with their talent and expertise and a layer of vice presidents that they had that also have experienced scale up and exit. So the ecosystem is, is having a very natural build. We're just, we're just a little bit behind you know, our country to the south, but we're, we're catching up rapidly in my view. That's really positive to hear. It's nice to hear, and especially coming from somebody who's so deep in and, and has the experience you have. With Canadian VC-backed firms, is there opportunity and how can they actually tap into U.S. money? I mean, is it unheard of to have a Canadian-backed VC firm or perhaps led by a Canadian VC firm and then get a U.S. participation in to raise more capital? Or you know, how is that starting to look? Yeah, it's not, not unheard of at all. And, it, and, and it's becoming increasingly common. And it's something that, you know, we relish. If a company in our portfolio is looking for $20 million plus and 10 of it is going to come from us, we actively covet and enjoy the participation of our U.S. partners to the South because they, quite frankly, they open up networks that, you know, we might not have as good an access to. And the good news is, as deals are hotly contested in the Valley, New York, and Boston, these firms are increasingly anxious to hear from us because they too are recognizing that we've got talent and we've got value up here that might be able to be participated in at, at you know, more attractive terms. So it really is a two-way street. And I, I find right now, we're, you know, pre-COVID, you know, certainly we're enter, entering into a very cooperative 
co-opetition, if you will, environment that is only good for the entrepreneur at the end of the day. So that is happening. It's happening actively. It used to be, you know, we, we'd go down or the entrepreneurs would go down and stand in line and beg for an audience. And increasingly, it's the U.S. venture firm saying, hey, what do you have? Let's talk. Should we be working together on this? Because at the end of the day, good partnerships between venture capitalists and investee companies are ones where they really are partnerships and, and we're rolling up our sleeves together. And if you're a firm, a venture capital firm based in the Valley, you don't really want to be hands-on alone, 3,000 miles and three time zones away. You know, you want to partner on the ground that as things go off the rails, and they always do, anyone that tells you that it's anything different is not giving you the straight goods. It's a roller coaster. And depending on where, where you're at on the roller coaster, you need involvement and you need eyes. And that's why I think the partnership works. Hmm. Well, again, that's, it's very positive to hear. Well, a question I want to ask is perhaps going behind the scenes of the VC world, and perhaps this is what you experience or not, but there seems that there can be a bit of a, well, one guest put it, a previous guest, Randy Thompson, put it as a popularity contest when it comes to being a VC investor or an angel investor into a deal. And when a deal gets enough tension in it, you can start to have a lot of money coming at it and potentially some people shut out. Have you experienced this? And, and what does that look like and how do you manage that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's like anything else. The beauty of capital markets is that there's a supply and demand. And one thing that I've noticed for sure that technology has brought to the table is that those markets become increasingly efficient, you know, as communication and transparency of information goes up. So one of the things I, I often tell entrepreneurs in tech companies is, you know, speed is important because there's no such thing as secrets anymore. So mm -hmm. you have to move quickly. And the reason for that is because information travels fast. So yes, you do end up, you know, with situations on successful companies where the entrepreneur has to make a choice. We have and continue to have a strong belief that the right advice into a company at the right time can make a world of difference. So we actively hired within our firm and then actively made it a priority to add value wherever we could, whether that be somebody that showed up for a piece of advice that we weren't going to invest in all the way through to the bets we've made. So we consciously built a brand that when a CEO comes into our family, they know they're going to get a lot of extra help. And, and I think the word for us has spread amongst CEOs that that's what round 13 has been up to. So we don't get shut out too often. And I think it's our job to keep working really hard to continue to make sure we don't. And when you think about it, competition for deals, you know, this, this wasn't a conversation that was happening four or five years ago. It can only be of benefit to the entrepreneurs and it's going to result in smarter, more effective money being behind the ones that deserve to win. And, and that's going to be good for everybody in terms of creating a more healthy ecosystem. So I think you're right. Yes, it does happen. Uh, it just means that people have to raise their game a little bit more. And, you know, instead of the same amount of direct investments that angels would make, 
you know, maybe partner with us or come in through a fund that is seeing 100 deals to do one rather than seeing eight deals to do one, hmm. if, you, if you understand. Yeah. 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 You know, the, as you're explaining that, I started thinking about, well, you mentioned partnership and, and really, I mean, you are in the trenches with them and that becomes part of the, the value you can bring along with just the, the checks you're writing into the deal. But on your website, you say that uh, your mandate is, is to be flexible and that you're able to formulate custom tailored and flexible and attractive investment structures. That last word there to me is the pivotal word is, is the structure, the structure of the deal, the participation, the terms and all of that that goes around. Can you expand on this? And then maybe the, a follow on question of that is how do your investee companies benefit from that without taking advantage of your flexibility? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, I, I think. Glad you brought it up. What it really means is, I think it's a disservice to entrepreneurs and investee companies to not make them aware, given the stage that their company is at, you've earned the right to have this number of options to choose from as financing vehicles, right? So let's go through a couple of them. You know, one would be, you know, I never thought I'd see this day where the big six banks in the country are lined up to provide very favorable debt to the top line of software as a service companies without any sign of profit on the horizon. You know, they, they mm. need to know that there's going to be profitability coming, but it was never a t better time to be getting very inexpensive, non-dilutive debt just secured by the top line revenue of some of these software as a service firms. So if the entrepreneurs aren't aware of that, I think it's disingenuous of us to take advantage of that and grab more equity, right? When they, they really should be in a position to take a little less from us, take advantage of the good terms that the Bank of Nova Scotia as one of our partners is offering and hang on to more of it for themselves so that they maintain the incentive to work towards a better outcome for everybody. So that would be, you know, one example. You know, on the flip side, we have an obligation to our limited partners and we have an obligation to being the biggest check at the table and, and sometimes the last check at the table to make sure that if things don't go that well, that we're taken care of on the way out the door. So that would be, you know, a more of a preferred structure. So in the array of options available, and I'll mention one more, you know, my friend Michelle Romanoff with her, her firm ClearBank that actually puts money out to e-commerce companies to help with their marketing spend, that would also mean you don't need to raise quite as much on the sales and marketing front. Entrepreneurs need to know, be aware of that as well. So when you put all of the array of options together, that's what I mean, right? Like let's put together something that yes, would be a good investment for us, but let's go in with the belief that of a big part of what makes for a good investment for us is making sure that the entrepreneurs and founders are also motivated and realize that they're, you know, not only getting a good hardworking partner with a check, but they're getting one that's fair and one that has their best interests in mind as well. So if I had more time, I would have written a shorter story, but that's what we're trying to say with that flexibility on the website. Yeah. I, I, uh, is <laughs> I mean, that Ernest Hemingway? Um, yeah, someone like that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, um, 
I appreciate that in the sense, you know, I just, I, well, I've seen too many horror stories where the person who's got the ability to write the check or the person who's got the ability to bring the capital together sees it as though they're the ones writing the rules and saying this, this, and this, and you want the money, here it is. Where what I'm hearing is from round 13 and, and even your, your philosophy on it is that it's in your better interest to help the entrepreneurs see all of the opportunity out there when it comes to raising capital so that they're just not, you know, it's not going to, in the long run, you, you might not even benefit from taking more equity in them when they could have had better opportunities. And it, to me, that leads to a lot of trust building. And not only that, I mean, if you looked at this industry in Canada 15 years ago, the people with the checks did hold all the cards and it was very old school and the lineup did start to the left right? And you considered yourself fortunate as an entrepreneur if you got an audience, which is, you know, that thankfully that's changed. You know, there is a lot more liquidity in the system. There's a lot more private capital at work. And regardless of it being the right thing to do and a strong belief that we have that if the entrepreneur is happy and motivated, it's going to make for a better return anyway. I wish we had have had that attitude 15 or 20 years ago, because I think the industry just didn't get it at that stage because of the supply demand thing. Mm -hmm. So yes, philosophically, I think it's better. And also because there is more money looking for good opportunities, it is almost, an I'm going to say it's a necessity as well. Anyone that's still operating on the belief that they're beholden to us, entrepreneurs are beholden to us, is missing the boat. I mean, mm. we, we, we're beholden to them. I mean, these are the people that are, are making it happen and they have choices. And are you sure you want me to make this public? Sure. 100%. 100% because yeah. there is a really, really fine line between being a smart, aggressive investor and being a smart, cooperative, good partner. And I believe that the latter. Uh, you know, the, the further you can move it on to the, to the right-hand side of that spectrum, the better the results are going to be for everybody. So mm -hmm. I welcome being challenged on that. And look at, I'm painting a pretty rosy picture. You know, sometimes they don't go like everybody predicts. And there is blow-ups in partnerships and there are disputes and there are times when people have to draw the line on both sides. So please don't mistake this with being, you know, yes, whatever you want is fine with us. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that through discussion, one of the things we screen for in our CEOs and entrepreneurs is, is open-mindedness and the demonstrated ability to be introspective to some degree so that we can put ego aside and have a conversation. If we can have a conversation based on logic and rational thought, if we've done a, the right job on choosing the people, resolutions will happen. And I'm committed to having our firm enter those discussions with a very open mind. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Now, that, that brings me to a question I want to ask about your experience in your career. And can you walk us through from, uh, I mean, early on with Lava Life through to your, your, your television experience and now as a, you know, your main focus is in venture capital. How has your perspective changed? If you were to look back and, and think back to different times in your career, 
have you noticed that you see things differently and how is that benefiting you? Yeah, you know, we were we were really fortunate as a partnership when we started Lava Life. It was at a time where this concept of organizational development and the importance of culture in a company was really not talked about that much. And, you know, my ventures before Lava Life, as small and, you know, moderately successful as they were, did not have the benefit of what we learned in sort of the first five to six years of growing that company. And we put an inordinate amount of time into things like identifying core values. Like what, are, what, were, the, what were the characteristics that we were looking for in a team member that we felt would be the most conducive to success of the company, right? And, you know, what were the characteristics? What were the definition of them? And how could we actively screen for those characteristics as we brought people onto the team? And I would have to say that the biggest lesson that I've had in my business career, and I can trace all my mistakes to it, and I can, I, I can trace my victories to it. And the gap between those two things is not as big as, you know, Dragon's Den would have you believe. You know, it, it was, uh, I've had a, a lot of failures. I've had a few more successes than failures. And thankfully, some of the successes were large ones. But I've had enough failures to know what I'm talking about that as I look back on them, I trace it all back to the same thing, that I didn't pay enough attention to the culture of the people I was bringing in around me. And when I did put the time in, it paid off in spades. So my biggest area of learning and the biggest, thing, I think, lens I bring to my investment philosophy now is I never shortchange, I try not to shortchange the um, amount of diligence that gets done on the type of people that we are looking to partner with as a firm. And that has been a lesson that has been built up over 30 years. And I'm not claiming to be a fast learner, but I think it's actually, you know, in my 50s, I think it's actually starting to sink in. Hmm. <laughs> well, hey, it takes a lifetime, right? It takes a lifetime. When, when you say screening or perhaps profi- profiling is definitely the wrong word, but when you look and you, and you really put so much emphasis on, on the people you bring in, what are some of those traits you look for? Or what's that process? What's that even that mental model you go through? So I'm officially done with working with people, f- alongside people, investing in people that can't get up in the morning, look in the mirror and reflect on yesterday and say, hmm, I think I made a mistake there. Or I learned something that, that hadn't occurred to me to think of it that way. The kind of ability to not show up thinking you have all the answers. Because the other thing that's been changing alongside hopefully my mini evolution as a person is that technology has fundamentally changed the landscape. You know, and I referred to it earlier in the podcast, there are no secrets. So it is increasingly rare for somebody to have all the answers as information is coming at us at a million miles an hour, how on earth does one person, you know, have, all, have, have, have the answers to all the questions? So I increasingly look for a lack of ego. 
uh, somebody that realizes that they need others around them. I've never done any business on my own in my career. I've always had partners. I've always tried to continue to remind myself about the things that are not my strengths and augment them. And I've come to realize that at times I've ignored that trait and made an investment anyway. And it just doesn't, it's never seemed to work out. So I think that would be my answer. Hmm. It is an interesting one because I think the, perhaps even with some seasoned entrepreneurs, there's a misconception that they have to have all the answers and to be successful, you have to, what is that word? Just have such determination that it's almost you, you lose touch with your own, your own mistakes. And I mean, you can be determined to get at the right answer. I mean, that's the answer. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fiercely determined to go find out what I don't know. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's what I want to hear, you know, showing up with all the answers is, is I I just don't believe it. Hmm. Uh, Now let's segue that into, uh, having all the answers and especially in a time like this with the Corona crisis we're experiencing, what are you doing as as a partner with your portfolio companies and, and overall, what are you seeing they're doing that's perhaps beneficial to the listeners to, uh, to help get through this? Well, sure. I mean, I think, I think we're going to look back on this and we're going to recognize some fairly definitive phases uh, that we're passing through. And I think we're just coming up sort of phase 1A, if you will. And that was characterized by, okay, looks like we've got something on the horizon here. Looks like it could be serious. Oh my God, mm-hmm. it's really going to be serious. So it's like there's a shock phase, you know, that all the best laid plans and the progress and how things were going aren't going to go that way, right? Regardless of what your team was and how good the momentum had been to this point, we are going to have an interruption. So, you know, phase one has been characterized by hunkering down from our perspective on the investments we've made, making sure that everybody has a plan. And, you know, the one thing that we all share regardless of who you are or what your industry is, a business person or not, is that nobody is able to predict the timeline as to when we're going to be back to business as usual or what business as usual is going to 100% look like. So Mm -hmm. we're all in the same boat that way. But the process of going through different scenarios and assumptions and making decisions in a prudent way is actually puts to the test, you know, what I said to you earlier, you know, it really does rely on the ability to sit around a table and take other points of view into account and through many hopefully smart pieces of data and input, make for a better decision. So that, that's a time-consuming process if you think about it, you know, mm-hmm. versus sitting in the ivory tower and making all the calls yourself. This is, and I think we're going to look back on, you know, the, the benefits of collaboration versus uh, the style of the president of the United States who, who, who decides to do things as it enters his brain, it comes out his mouth, and it's often, <laughs> it's often wrong. You know, that'd be a big classic example of somebody I'd never partner, you know, it would never happen that yeah. you know, never be you a know, partner with somebody like that's exactly the kind of person that does is not a fit right in today's collaborative 
many people in on a decision make for a better decision. I'm open to change my mind. Geez, never thought of that. Can you imagine those words coming out of that guy's mouth? Anyway, (laughs) so it's crazy. So, so that, so that's, that's the phase we're just coming out of a little bit now. And that, that will require constant monitoring as government programs get better understood that gets plugged into the model. And we sort of change on the fly. Some companies continued to be invested in because we think that there'll be industries that will come back quicker. There's the odd company that's actually benefiting during the crisis because it may be involving communication or better communication between people. E-commerce is still, as we sit, going pretty strongly as people shift their buying habits. So there are pockets. So I think that, that we'll look back and that's, that's a phase. Around 13, is we have the luxury of sitting on a fair amount of capital. We just finished raising a fair chunk. So, you know, we are actively looking at investments at the same pace or, frankly, even uh, faster pace and more in-depth than we were before the crisis. And, in in fact, are, are hiring now to make sure that we leave no stone unturned. So we're open for business. I think from the perspective of entrepreneurs out there that are trying to muddle through, I'll give the same advice that we gave to our own investee companies. Take whatever your assumption is on how long this might impact your business. Add a little bit more time to that because whenever it comes back, whatever that definition looks like, it's not going to be often the first thing on people's list, how to spend company money and people will have less of it. So plan on it lasting longer than you think it will. Be prudent and keep the same optimism that got you where you are in the first place. And I have to tell you, it's been amazing for me to see. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised, right? Because it's the nature of entrepreneurs that they're entrepreneurs in the first place, that they bring a level of optimism to the table or they probably wouldn't be doing what they're doing. but I've been, I've been just so impressed with the clarity of thought, the compassion and empathy, while at the same time, the realization that hard decisions need to be made and they're being made. And it's, it's given me a, a, an incredible jolt of optimism in the future and um, validated you know, some of the choices that we've made in, in the people we've decided to partner with. And, I, and I, I'm, that's a blanket statement but I'm, I, I'm talking to a lot of people through this and people are realizing that we're all in it together and it doesn't really do a lot of good to bemoan the fact that it's not like it used to be. There's been a, a, an incredible spirit of let's get on with it, which I, I just have to call out because I admire it so much. That is positive. And you also look and I mean, what are our options say that, you know, this isn't good and it's not going to get better. Well, I mean, we're all screwed if that's the case. So you might as well keep it, keep your head up and keep pushing forward. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There isn't, there isn't a choice. You know, it's that old adage that I would, I've never been really good at, but I've been really trying to practice it now. That whole thing about only control the things you can control and then try not to worry about the rest. Mm. I was never good about not worrying about the rest. I was the guy up at three in the morning, even though I couldn't, control it, it was on my mind. So hmm. I think I'm getting a little bit better at that. You have to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm looking at the time we have and, and perhaps what I can do is throw a, 
a couple of random questions at you because just I haven't been able to weave them in our previous conversation. And then we'll, uh, we'll aim to wrap it up. How's that sound? Uh, by all means. Yeah, sounds good. What companies have you passed on, which perhaps led for you to something, you know, something important you learned from that? Well, it's so funny. You know, I, I, I spent three years on, on that Canadian reality show, The Dragon's Den, where we used to see 230 business pitches in the span of about 20 days. And oh, wow. Each pitch was about 40 minutes long, you know, so it was a smorgasbord for, entre- for investor entrepreneurs. And it was quite a lot of stimulus. And, and I picked up a lesson during that period because if I spent energy looking back on the ones that I missed, aside from some obvious lessons that may have jumped out in analysis or what have you, I would drive myself crazy. And, I, and thankfully, there was an engine and a machine, and still is, frankly, in Canada because of the profile of Lava Life in round 13, and I guess helped by Dragon's Den. There is no end to opportunities. I spend as a result, and I'm not saying that you know, I might be missing a learning opportunity here, but I spend very little time looking backwards at missed opportunities hmm. because the, the world of possibilities is just kind of never ending for us. And I find it, it a little bit of waste of energy to look back on the would haves, could haves, should haves, um, unless there's a clear, obvious organizational learning potential there. Sometimes it just, it just doesn't work. And, and the circumstances are, like we said, beyond, beyond your control. Hmm. Okay. Next random question would be uh, any books you're reading? Are you, are you a reader? And, and what are the most perhaps valuable to you? Well, it's funny, out of all the business people I know, I probably read the least number of business books. And I think it's got something to do with how all-consuming my life as an entrepreneur has been and the way my mind works. When I'm into something, I'm all in. And that means at times I find it very difficult to shut my brain off thinking about business. And that is not a recipe for balance and you know being a, a, a person that people like to be around sometimes. So I don't stop thinking about business and then pick up a business book. So I, I don't read any business books. I, I, I've read one that stuck with me, uh, Built to Last, because it was such a, mm. a great book about organizational design and development. And that was you know, formed the basis of, of a lot of what I've done. So I've, I've got one on the shelf. But by and large, I try and read something that takes my mind far away from the day-to-day grind of business. And, you know, there's a guy named Don Winslow who writes about, you know, just fiction, right? Uh, Fiction that is close to reality. I love Westerns, of all things. Um, You know, just sort of something radically different than I do day-to-day that is still based somewhat in reality is is what attracts me. Oh, interesting. (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed Westerns. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, And uh, I think as a final question, perhaps, is just any final advice or final remarks that you would have for entrepreneurs, both in, I mean, today's age and, and perhaps just in general about how to help them from, uh, from the years of experience you've had. I'll give you two. Um, one is consistent with what I've been saying all along. You can't put enough time into deciding who it is that you want to work with as a business partner, whether that be financial or operational. 
I would encourage everyone to put the time into thinking about and defining the characteristics of what a partner needs to look like to actually help you grow your business or maintain your business or have a successful business. Whatever your definition of success is, put the prerequisite amount of time into identifying the characteristics and then actively screening for that as you bring people into the organization. Because over time, people's true colors come out when things get tough and you'll always have times when they get tough and you will be very thankful for the attention that you gave that particular process when those tough times arrive. On the topic of good times and bad times, you're going to have them. And my final piece of advice would be, listen, it's called a cycle for a reason. Every business has it. And you know, you get terms like the roller coaster coming out of that. It is very real. So when things are going really, really well, and you don't think the good times can ever last, I would encourage you not to hang on to those feelings too tightly because inevitably it is going to change. And you know, if you're not hanging on too tight, the ride down or into the trough or the next challenge doesn't seem as debilitating. And then likewise, when you're in the trough and a lot of businesses as we record this podcast now, what, three plus weeks in, into COVID, are feeling that they're in a trough that they might not come out of or that it's going to be very difficult to climb the other side. But if you hang in there and keep doing the right thing with the right people around you, this too will end. And we will be up climbing the next hill together and we'll be out of it. It may take a little bit longer this time than anything you might have experienced before, but things go in cycles and we will prevail. Well, uh, this too shall pass. As this I too say. shall pass, exactly. Yeah. Well, Bruce, uh, thank you so much for your time. I know this was, um, well, was a long time coming and so we appreciate you uh, coming on and, and sharing your experience here. This, is, uh, this will be well received. Thanks, Corey. I'm glad I could, I could be. Hopefully it'll be helpful to, to your listeners and I thank you for inviting me. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.